Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. It would be on the news later. A few reporters in puffy hoods and mittens would reassuringly tell their audiences no one had been on the mountain when the avalanche started. They had gotten this information from authorities who would have scoured the mountainside for survivors had there been any indication human beings were up there during the disaster. Since no one had registered themselves either at the ski resort or with Ski Patrol, a branch of search and rescue specifically dedicated to extracting trapped and injured skiers on Montan de Lamour, rescue personnel did not risk the weather to look for anyone. The general consensus was someone would have to have been insane to try skiing during that storm. Montan de Lamour had been dubbed so by a French-Canadian man who nearly lost his life on its slopes in the mid-20th century. The name, translating to Mountain of Death, stuck locally. But since most visitors to the mountain took Spanish instead of French in high school, it became commonly known as Mount Death. The mountain earned this title again and again with at least one skier dying each season since 1987. To some, this posed good reason to close the mountain down for good. For others, the blood of fellow skiers drew them in like hungry sharks. The resort at the base of Mount Death did not allow anyone without at least five years of mountain skiing experience to attempt the slopes of Mount Death, directing guests to easier hills nearby. They couldn't stop people from running into trees or spilling over gullies, but they worked with local authorities to do controlled explosions to knock down loose snow and ice before it caused an avalanche. Of course, this system was not foolproof and couldn't account for sudden natural phenomena, but so is the nature, and for some the allure, of Mount Death. Resort staff had been given a weather brief a week ahead of the blizzard and informed all guests that the slopes would be closed for the weekend. They had to refund a few canceled stays, but a surprising number of guests chose to stay for a quiet weekend inside, watching the storm from the high vantage point the resort's big windows provided. Some, such as Adam and Zoe Larkin, also chose to stay because they hoped the weather might make a sudden change. Adam and Zoe had received the disheartening email about the blizzard just two days before they were supposed to leave for the resort. They had been planning the trip for a year, saving and cutting corners just to afford it. They had discovered their love of skiing together three years prior and read all about Mount Death online. They didn't know how anyone could verify how long they had been skiing and had figured they could get away with adding a couple of years to their resumes, but that wouldn't matter if the slopes were closed. Why go if we can't even ski? Zoe had asked. To her, a weekend trapped inside did not sound worth the hassle of traveling. Adam answered, We don't know for sure that this storm will be as bad as they say. You know how inaccurate meteorologists can be. Maybe we'll get lucky. Zoe had tried to convince him to ask for a refund and reschedule their trip. Adam had argued that the resort was booked up for the rest of the season and canceling would mean waiting another entire year. That's another year of watching every penny we spend he said. Plus, even if the resort gives back our deposit, I can't get my money back for the plane tickets. We can't afford to just eat that cost, Zoe. The pressure of Adam's will, not his logic, finally made Zoe agree. 
But when the couple had arrived at the resort Friday afternoon, it looked like he could be right about the meteorologist being wrong. Sunlight glistened off Mount Death from a cloudless blue sky. What did I tell you? Adam had gloated. Zoe had rolled her eyes, glad he had been right but unwilling to congratulate him. Her prior misgivings eased as they enjoyed a hot meal and a few drinks in the resort's restaurant that night. A little drunk, Adam had gotten in bed that night with a childish grin on his face. What? Zoe had asked. Well, I was thinking, Adam said, giving his wife a chance to insert one of her snarky remarks like, well, that's never good, or haven't you learned not to do that by now? But Zoe only watched him attentively. He continued, I know they closed the slopes because there's supposedly a storm, right? But I don't see any storms at all. What if we could get up there ourselves? What, like, without the lift? Zoe asked. Oh, come on, the lift only gets you halfway up anyway. We could hike it. Adam, you're drunk. Yeah, but do you really want to have come all this way not to ski the legendary Mount Death? Zoe thought for a moment, then, against her better judgment, said, I guess not. The couple spent the next hour planning and plotting, and before the sun rose the next morning, they were hiking up Mount Death with their skis on their backs. Here is where Adam and Zoe Larkin made a fatal error. They were from the city where urban lights constantly blocked out the stars. They were used to looking up at a flat, dimensionless night sky. Neither of them had considered how, up on Mount Death, the pre-dawn sky should have been speckled with millions of glowing stars. Neither of them considered how the moon should have been three-quarters full and just to the west of the peak. Neither of them realized they were hiking under storm clouds, and by the time they realized the truth, it would be far too late. The wind began to whisper doom as the sun started to rise. Zoe kept her uneasy feelings to herself, realizing to give up now would mean hiking all the way back down. They had nearly reached the peak when sleet started pecking at their faces, chipping at their helmets and goggles. The wind picked up. The sleet and snow started blowing sideways. On top of making it nearly impossible to stand up straight, the wind reduced visibility to about the length of their arms. Zoe could barely see her gloves when she had them held out in front of her. Even the forearms of her hot pink snowsuit became difficult to see. Let's cut across and hit a slope, Adam had shouted over the wind. I don't think we're going to make it to the peak in this. How are we going to ski when we can't even see two feet ahead? Zoe had asked. Adam had chosen not to answer rather than admit he didn't know. The couple had cut a diagonal line across the mountain until they finally found what appeared to be a slope. Thanks to the falling snow, there were no tracks from previous skiers, but Adam thought if they went slow, they could navigate their way down. Zoe didn't share his confidence, but followed her strong-willed husband anyway. To his credit, Adam did lead Zoe almost halfway back down. He may have even managed to get her all the way if it hadn't been for the big one, as it would later be called, the avalanche. The distant, thunderous sound of thousands of pounds of ice, snow, and rock falling toward them didn't punch above the howling wind until the avalanche was practically on top of them. It hit Zoe first, and her punctuated scream alerted Adam. He looked back in time to see her topple over and appear to fly up and past him just as the force of a speeding train slammed into his back. Adam's brain sent messy, garbled signals over the next few seconds. He was intermittently aware of pain, sharp, burning stings in his legs and back. 
but the pain would be interrupted by the burning in his chest. He couldn't breathe. His skis were both ripped off almost simultaneously, and he didn't even bother trying to hold onto his poles. Twice something struck his head, the first damaging his helmet and the second knocking him unconscious. Impossibly, he was still being pushed down the mountain when he came to. Adam was only faintly aware that he was completely submerged as the avalanche slowed. He tried to kick in a sort of swimming motion, but he had lost all feeling in his legs. That was probably a blessing. It was only the final tumble of snow that saved him from suffocation. He was rolled and pushed upward by something like an undertow, if snow can create such a thing. His body finally stopped with only his head and part of his right shoulder breaching the snow. He sucked in air with massive effort. Snow pressed heavily on his chest and he guessed many of his ribs had been shattered. He felt grateful to be unable to feel his legs because his arms were supplying just about all the pain he could bear. He couldn't move them under the heavy snow, but wasn't sure if he would have been able to move them anyway. His left elbow raged in particular. From the pulling sensation he felt there, he assumed his forearm had been bent at an unnatural angle. The muscles may have even torn. His right arm was pinned straight to his side, but his hand wasn't touching his leg. It had gone numb, but based on the strain in his wrist, he had to assume it was twisted outward. He tried calling Zoe's name, but he couldn't get enough air out to make any sound. He also couldn't turn his head to the left at all. Not only did it hurt his neck to do so, the snow blocked his chin from moving more than a few inches. He could, however, look to the right. There was a thick grove of evergreen trees about a hundred feet in that direction. Amazed, Adam realized that meant he must have slid all the way down past the resort. This gave him some hope that maybe Zoe had gotten stuck somewhere further up near the resort and within easy reach of a rescue team. If she were rescued, she could tell them to look for him. Maybe the situation wasn't hopeless after all. In the wake of these positive thoughts, Adam decided his situation could be worse. Since his body was completely buried, the snow trapped his head and kept him out of the wind. The snow also numbed his pain, which he was sure would have been excruciating otherwise. The wind wasn't nearly as strong down there, so his naked face, he had lost his goggles, wouldn't get windburned as easily. And the sun was still hidden behind clouds above. He could stay hydrated by licking snow, and he could breathe enough to stay conscious. All he had to do was wait. All he could do was wait. With no way of tracking time, Adam could only guess how much had passed before the sun crept out of the clouds. He estimated about two hours, but it might have been only 20 minutes. Wind blew down in periodic gusts, shifting the snow around rather than removing it. At one point, his right shoulder got buried, but was uncovered again just moments later. Then the wind went temporarily silent. In the stillness, Adam heard something rustle and snap in those nearby trees. He strained his neck to see what it was. He wondered if Zoe had actually been pushed all the way down and was making her way back up. That meant she was okay. He tried again to call her name but still couldn't make a sound. Whatever had made the noise stopped moving, and Adam figured it had just been snow falling from a tree. Before he returned his neck to a neutral position, he felt something in his lower half for the first time. It was nothing more than a dull pulling sensation, but it encouraged him and scared him at the same time. Then the snow around him started sliding again. He only slid a dozen feet or so, but his new position reignited all the pain that had been numbed during his time in stillness. Now he was buried to his chin, too. 
ice crystals pressed into his neck and jaw. He had been rotated slightly so that he now was facing the trees. The trees and something new. Something heartbreaking. Almost halfway between him and the evergreens, Adam saw a single ski attached to a boot protruding from the leg of a hot pink snowsuit. The leg stuck straight up out of the snow. The knee was bent backward. Adam would have recognized that ridiculous snowsuit anywhere. He had teased his wife about it incessantly. Now he knew she hadn't stopped near the resort or been pushed to the bottom of the mountain. She had been buried like him, only flipped upside down. Her pant leg had fallen down a little and he could see grayish-blue skin beneath it. Zoe, he realized, had likely been killed before they stopped falling, maybe even by the initial impact. Mount Death had claimed one more. Adam spent the next half hour locked in place, staring at his dead wife's leg. His body had gone almost completely numb, but his mind entered a state of streamlined thought. His thoughts were mostly of regret, guilt, and self-hatred. He started to not only believe he would never be rescued, but that he didn't deserve to be rescued. Zoe should have been spared, not him. Going up the mountain had been his idea. Every time she had wanted to turn back, he had pushed her onward. She had only been in the avalanche's path because of his pig-headedness, and now she lay frozen, upside down, turning frostbitten black before his eyes. And he couldn't even look away. Adam could have closed his eyes, but when he had tried to, he started falling asleep. He wisely predicted that if he let himself drift off, he would never open his eyes again. I guess maybe I do still believe in rescue, he thought. Why else would he care about staying alive? Something rustled the trees again. Adam looked past Zoe's mangled leg to see if he could find whatever had moved. He suppressed the vague hope which began to arise in his compressed chest. He didn't think a person could be over in those trees, but if they were... He watched and listened, wishing he could use his voice. Then it emerged. Slowly, low to the ground, a wolf snuck out from between two of the thicker trees. It stood like a statue at the edge of the trees, buried to its belly in snow. Its eyes, its harsh, predatory gaze, searched the snow and quickly located both Adam's glistening red helmet and Zoe's hot pink pant leg. The wolf flinched backward at the unnatural bright color, but then jutted its head outward. Adam could see its breath misting on the wind as it sniffed the air, trying to determine what the strange, colorful objects in the snow could be. A second wolf emerged. This one's belly hovered a few inches above the snow. Adam had never seen wild wolves before and had assumed the first one was fully grown, but now saw it was only a pup. A third and fourth wolf followed the first two out of the trees, and the small pack looked out over the snow with cold hunger in their eyes. The fourth canine stood nearly a head taller than the middle two and towered over the pup. It also seemed to be the bravest. Adam clenched his jaw as this wolf lowered its head and started stalking up to Zoe's leg. The wolf sniffed her ski, then her boot. Something about the boot, maybe the smell of leather or sweat, excited the wolf. It turned back toward the other three, raising its head slightly, and made a reedy sound between a bark and a howl. The others came to his side excitedly, leaving behind bursting clouds of snow as they charged. The big wolf continued sniffing Zoe's leg and licked her exposed skin. 
Adam felt sick. He had the sensation of nausea in the back of his throat and palate, but the muscles in his gut responsible for throwing up were offline. He wanted to scream at the wolves to scare them away, but could not make a sound. The pup started playing with Zoe's pant leg, tugging at the outer fabric and leaping back as little tufts of insulation popped out of it. The other two had begun digging. The big wolf clamped down on the flesh of Zoe's ankle and yanked on it. To Adam's horror, the lower half of Zoe's leg tore off at the twisted knee. Her calf and everything below it slipped out of the torn pant leg like a churro in a paper sleeve. The big wolf carried it a few feet back toward the trees, set it down on a protruding rock, and began to feast. Adam clenched his eyes shut, but he couldn't cover his ears. The wet smacks of the wolf's jaw created a mental image that may have been worse than the real one. The other wolves had uncovered most of Zoe's lower half by then. Adam opened his eyes when they started yipping triumphantly. One of the medium-sized animals bit into her snowsuit and repeatedly tugged at it with its whole body. Zoe came out of the snow a little more with each pull. The pup ran circles around her and the other wolves, impatiently waiting for the main course to be served. Adam watched now with sick hopelessness. He couldn't look away. He had to keep his eyes open to know if any of those wolves were starting to come for him. He knew that once they had finished with Zoe, they would explore that shiny red thing just a little further away. How long would it take them to dig him out of the avalanche? The medium wolf that didn't have its mouth full of Zoe's snowsuit suddenly raised its head and howled at full volume. Adam saw why. The other wolf had brought Zoe's exposed head out of the snow. Unlike Adam's, Zoe's helmet had come off during the avalanche, and it had taken her goggles too. Her hair surrounded her head in a half-frozen blonde puddle. The wolf had mercilessly allowed her face to fall toward Adam. He stared into her wide eyes, icy blue in more ways than one, as the biggest wolf approached the pack again. He carried a long, bloody bone in his mouth, Zoe's boot was still attached at the end, although the ski had finally broken off. The big wolf tore the center of Zoe's snowsuit apart, and the others followed suit in different directions. Soon, Adam heard the wet tearing of flesh and muscle and closed his eyes again. He still had them closed when he heard something puff in the snow close to him. Instinctively, he opened his eyes. The big wolf had tossed the bone and boot aside and the grotesque remnant had landed less than ten feet from Adam's head. He could even read Zoe's initials, ZL, in gold sharpie on the side of the bloody boot. Catching movement, Adam's eyes accidentally shifted to the carnage. He locked eyes with the big wolf. It had a dark organ in its jaws, dripping blood down the white fur of its throat. In one motion, the wolf tossed its head back and snapped up the organ, then faced Adam again. With its eye low to the ground, it started creeping towards him. Adam looked into Zoe's eyes as if some deep part of his brain thought he could still find comfort in them. It was like part of him hadn't realized or accepted that she was gone. Her head jerked up and down as the wolves gorged on her flesh and vitals. One of them had noticed the big one walking away and looked up. A sinewy bit of muscle stretching between its mouth and Zoe's thigh snapped audibly. This wolf joined the big one on its approach. They came at an excruciating pace. Adam wished they would pounce on him and be done with it. They just kept staring at him with their greedy eyes. Adam tried again to produce some sound, any sound, to try to scare them off. 
but that effort was hopeless. And then they were on him, sniffing, smelling. Their teeth clicked against his helmet as they licked it, trying to determine if part of this creature was food. And then one of their tongues brushed his cheek. He felt its hot breath and smelled the metallic scent of his wife's blood that it carried. Right next to his ear, the wolf howled. The other two dashed over to join their friends. Kill me, Adam thought. Please, God, just kill me. He wanted them to tear out his throat. It seemed like the quickest way. But seeing how they had consumed his wife led him to believe his throat would be one of the last bits they would eat, like a stringy dessert. They wanted the soft flesh of his belly, his organs, his muscles. How long would he stay awake while they tore him apart? Would shock kick in even if his nerves had all been shut down by the cold? Would their vicious jaws reignite his senses, renew and amplify his pain? They started digging. The little one licked his face and nipped at his nose. It seemed hesitant to take a bite, but Adam could feel how much it wanted to. To that little wolf, he was like a seasoned steak behind the glass at a meat counter. Or maybe a more accurate comparison was to a live lobster in the tank with its claws rubber-banded shut. One of them uncovered his shoulder and tugged at his black snowsuit. This seemed to encourage the others. Soon he was being pulled three different directions at once. He could only feel faint pressure as they tugged at him with the power of three small tractors. Then they were dragging him. He was on his back, staring up into the sky. The clouds had vanished. Just when, he couldn't be sure, but now the sky was clear crystal blue. He stared up into that blue void as the greedy wolves ripped open his snowsuit. He felt a strange sensation in his belly. It reminded him of when he'd had his appendix removed, of the dull, not quite painful discomfort with which he had woken up after surgery. But no amount of frozen numbness could have blocked out the sound. He heard squelching, tearing noises as his body was lifted an inch off the ground and dropped again. He heard the splash of blood and the snapping jaws. He rolled his head back and forth in the snow, his body putting all of its energy, its will to escape, into the one part of him that could still move. He opened his eyes and saw Zoe's staring back at him. He looked at her, ready to join her, to apologize eternally in the next life. And finally, mercifully, Adam's world went black. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening.